Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Joshua Mina. I'm here today with Dr. Charity Dean, who is the former Santa Barbara County Public Health Officer, former Assistant Director at the California Department of Public Health. And I know personally, because I've seen her out on the baseball field and all around super mom, it's my pleasure to be here today with you. How are you, Dr. Dean? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. And just for the record, Josh Molina is our favorite baseball coach. <laughs> Thank you. Well, those, that was definitely, those were some good years. We had a really good year, and I will always remember that. But um, I'm here today to talk to you because I'm so excited that you would take the time to talk a little bit about what you are the total expert in, and that is public health. And we're going to talk about... COVID-19 and what's happening right now, obviously, in the state and in the country. You are a super expert on this, so I just want to kind of talk to you and sort of get a sense of how we are dealing with this pandemic, how the state, how the country is responding to it. Obviously, we're six months in, and um, we're sort of uh, still right in the middle of it. Our kids can't go to school, you know, if you go to public school right now. Uh, we have a lot of restrictions, a lot of rules. You know, as a reporter, there's lots of inconsistent messaging that's going on from various levels of government. And so it's sort of frustrating. And we're all kind of living in this space where a year ago we had no concept, no idea. <laughs> At least, you know, people like me, you know, we just didn't understand that this was even possible. So I just want to sort of dive right in and talk to you a little bit about um, you know, from your perspective, how are things going with COVID-19 in the state? Are we handling this well? Or are we, where, where are we at with this right now? Well, yeah, I'm happy to talk about all of that. Um, this is a subject I've been obsessed with my, my whole life. Uh, my undergraduate was in microbiology. And um, being the health officer for Santa Barbara County was an incredible opportunity to learn about a host of different communicable diseases and how they behave. And so I'll just start by saying um, a pandemic or any communicable disease outbreak can feel really out of control and unpredictable, but there's actually a rhythm and a cadence and a predictability to them. Um, for example, the Spanish flu of 1918 was over 100 years ago, and many of us in the public health community around 2015 started getting very anxious knowing that the world was overdue for another one, that it we were coming up on the 100-year mark. Mm -hmm. And watching some of the pathogens emerging out of areas like China that we know are, are high risk for having a human-slash-animal um, pathogen um, is something that caused a lot of anxiety in the public health community over the recent years. So headed into January, as we were all watching the reports of what was happening in Wuhan, it, it doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics to arrive at the conclusion that this was a dangerous pathogen. You know, watching the apartment buildings having their doors soldered shut, I began to ask myself, what would be the mathematical attributes of a pathogen that would make them do that? In other words, how fast would it have to spread? What would the mortality rate have to be? What would the hospitalization rate have to be? And that's all to say, once you know those numbers or even have a range of what those numbers are, you can start to build a very simple math equation. 
to predict the direction it would head when it hit the United States. And so where we are today in the United States is we've, of course, blown through any ability to contain this. And we're now in a phase called mitigation, which might otherwise be called do your best. <laughs> because once once you've blown through containment, it's a, it's a very delicate dance in restrictions and freedoms to try and clamp down or loosen up in different areas or across different sectors to keep the level of the virus low enough that you don't break the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And that's the dance the United States is doing today. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 1918. What have we learned since 1918 in terms of how you respond to a pandemic? Great question. And I think that's actually the question that I wish more people had asked in January. Mm-hmm. Because we learned a lot from 1918 there are some very articulate papers that were written in 2007 and 2008 that reviewed 1918 asking that question. Uh, What did we learn? And my favorite chart from those papers is the one that compares the different cities and essentially says, if we were to give each city a scorecard from 1918, how did they do? How, How do they compare against each other? What would that look like? And you can actually do that because you can look at the excess mortality rate or the number of deaths above what would be expected. And then you can compare that over time and see how many excess deaths did each city have and then compare that to the interventions they put in place. And so one of the biggest lessons that 1918 taught us was that Clamping down a sector or doing an intervention like closing schools wasn't enough. What really mattered was how soon was it implemented and was it held for long enough. Mm. And we're seeing that in California. In other words, if you close down a sector, or I'm, I'm just going to broadly call this social distancing, and that includes things like closing schools or closing restaurants. Mm. If you implement a social distance, distancing measure otherwise known as a non-pharmaceutical intervention. Mm. What really matters is did you do it soon enough and did you hold it long enough? Because even if you do it soon enough, if you let up too early, what happens is the virus comes right back. And two months later, it will be as if you had never implemented that at all. And from an economic standpoint, and full disclosure, I do not have a background in economics. I probably have no business talking about it. But from an economic standpoint, the real tragedy for the United States is if you implement social distancing measures for too short a period of time, then you suffer the economic devastation from that, like small businesses closing Mm -hmm. or parents losing their jobs because they have to homeschool their children. You suffer those downsides without benefiting from controlling the virus, Mm -hmm. from without benefiting from fully controlling the virus as you would have if you had just held it another two weeks or another two months. So the trick isn't just to implement the right social distancing measures at the right time. It's to hold them, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. You know you're successful when you start to question if this was even needed because the virus levels fall down to a low to a low level, mm-hmm. and that's when you know you're successful. And the temptation at that point 
is to just release everything and say, back to life as usual. That's the temptation. And so from 1918, what we see looking at um, the scorecards from the cities is that the, the cities that closed schools early and held them long enough um, were very successful. And um, those that either implemented the measures too late or let up too early um, suffered and the virus came raging back. And for non-pharmaceutical interventions, it's a fancy term, but it basically means if you don't have a vaccine and you don't have an antiviral treatment, then you have to do all of these other things like wearing masks and keeping, you know, six feet or more apart and um, not being in close contact, sharing airspace in a room. So there's all these tools that we have that we know work and are very similar to how it was controlled 100 years ago. You know, it's interesting because I felt the frustration as a reporter that a lot of the messaging was more political in, well, still even today, but especially sort of March and April. And it was frustrating because everything shut down in March and we got used to this sort of stay-at-home order. It was really tough. We were about like, okay, I think this is going to be how it's going to be for a while. And then we opened up like a Memorial Day weekend and just, you know, sort of my frame in Santa Barbara was it's sort of frustrating when you sort of hear the public health messaging coming out and saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but you can eat outdoors um, or you can gather outdoors because the virus doesn't spread as much outdoors. But at the same time, they'll say, don't have backyard barbecues or gatherings. And, right. you know, we're told, trust, <laughs> trust your doctors and trust your health officials and trust the science. And so it's very frustrating, I think, the mixed messaging that has happened with this pandemic. And, of course, the other side is, come on, Josh, we're just all figuring it out as we go. Yeah. Uh, no one has the answers, but I think there's a little bit of a higher expectation that, people who are trained in this field that we would feel a little more safer about their direction. And so, of course, we opened a little bit too early, right? And then what happened? In Santa Barbara, all the cases came back up and we had to close again. And it led to the fact that we couldn't reopen schools in the fall. Right. You know, like, what would right. have happened if we would have just stayed closed all the way up until August? I don't know if that would have been a long, a long enough period, but... Instead, we open a Memorial Day and we expect everything to be fine by late August when kids have to go back to school. So it's just sort of interesting that what I've learned from this is there are no perfect people and there are no, uh, there's no perfect way out of it. And I think the the point you you raised is that we're sort of dealing with these non-medical solutions social mm-hmm. distancing, right. it's mass. It's right. sort of, we've already lost that. You know, there's no vaccine, so we've got to do this. And that's that's really interesting. And, you know, it, it sort of falls in line with the whole testing messaging. Right? Right. Originally, it was if you're too young, if you're in your 20s and you're sick, don't get tested. You'll probably be fine. It, you, it's only the older people, the people with pre-existing conditions. Those are the priorities for testing because right. it wasn't, the, I guess, the capability to test everybody. 
And then that changed, right? And then so it's like, okay, we want more people to get tested. And then it's sort of like, well, actually kids can get it, you know? And then it's actually young people can get it. So I think with that messaging has been inconsistent. Let's talk about testing, okay? Yeah. Okay. What, what is the, what are your views on testing? Does, should everybody go get tested? Should they have always been tested? And then is there enough capability to test everybody? Can, can you maybe connect the dots on the testing equation and how that relates to sort of getting over the next hump with this pandemic? Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm impressed you've picked up on that because you're spot on that testing is the most important thing going on right now. Um, testing is the cornerstone of any reopening strategy for schools, for businesses, absent a treatment or a vaccine. Testing is how we will know where we are and who is infectious. And the reason is that this virus, and we've known this since about February, this virus has a large component of asymptomatic spread, meaning people that either don't have symptoms yet or will never develop symptoms spread the virus at likely the same rate as people that have symptoms. And what we know now is that asymptomatic spread is likely contributing around 40%, maybe a range of 30 to 60% of the cases. And so it, it's fascinating to watch how we in communicable disease respond to a pathogen that has that large component of asymptomatic spread. And what that means is that we have to use testing to know who is infected and who is contagious to other people because we cannot just use symptoms. You know, fever checking is actually not the greatest way to know if someone is contagious for coronavirus because of so many people don't have any symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. And of those who do have symptoms, they might not have a fever. And so the history of the story with testing, and you probably know most of this, is that because the CDC would not allow widespread testing because of their um, botched attempts to make a test and distribute it out across the country through February and March, the states were at a loss to test anyone for coronavirus because they had to get special permission from the CDC for each specimen that was sent to be tested at the CDC. And in March, that really hit a crisis point in California. It was about mid to late March when California was only doing about 2,000 tests per day for a state of 40 million people. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I was approached and asked um, if, it would, if I would be willing to stand up a testing task force and lead it, along with my co-chair, who became Paul Markovich, who is an amazing human, and Bob Kocher, who was a partner in that as well, and could we design a testing task force that could rapidly tackle the problem and scale up testing for the state. And at the time, we knew that testing would be the cornerstone of any reopening strategy. And so we knew that this was the single most important thing California had to solve. But it was really complicated because the supply chain was backed up. And I spent hours and hours on the phone trying to figure out how to solve for each piece of the supply chain. It wasn't just the swabs. If, if you found the swabs, then you couldn't find the viral transport media. And if you found those, then you couldn't find the conical vials. Mm-hmm. Then there were issues with delivery. And, you know, states were in essence competing against each other, which should never happen. And so 
we, we kind of almost felt like the mafia trying to use any means necessary to find the supplies all over the world and secure them for California. And it, it was a race against the clock. Mm-hmm. And so um, we scaled up testing in California from when we started the end of March. It was about 2,000 tests a day to the end of April, over 25,000 tests a day. And then by the end of June, we were doing well over 60,000 tests a day, which is the goal that the governor had set for us. And every day, we were directly accountable to the governor for those numbers. Um, Those were the most stressful days of my career because knowing how much was on the line for California, for California's economy, for kids getting back to school, you know, everything that we wanted to do hinged on testing. And I saw myself as not just accountable to the governor every day, but to the people of California. This was a problem that had to be solved, and it was really clear the federal government was not going to solve it for us. Mm-hmm. And as California, we had to lean forward and come up with solutions and invent our own solutions where they didn't exist. And so fast forward to July. In July, California was doing around 120,000 tests a day, which was just phenomenal. It, it, it blew through any expectations we had had, um, and yet it wasn't enough. And it wasn't enough because um, if you imagine testing as being the cornerstone of a reopening strategy, in order for kids to get back to school or businesses to reopen, they need to have the ability to test students, teachers, employees on a regular basis because of the asymptomatic spread. And so that's the situation that California and the whole United States is in right now. We need to be testing more. Um, businesses, schools, different sectors need to have a plan to test their students, teachers, employees on a regular basis because that's how we safely return to work or return to school. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is the availability of tests. And so one of the things um, I was a part of on the testing task force was partnerships with various efforts across the private sector to solve the problem. And it's pretty remarkable to see the innovation in laboratory in, in laboratory medicine with new types of tests, new you know the saliva test from Yale and a number of other academic entities that have launched new solutions. Because the the solution the country needs is really a test that is fast, that is cheap, that you get the results within 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, that's ubiquitous, that is everywhere. Um, that you don't have to go to a lab to have it done. You don't have to wait seven days for results. And we as a country are not there yet. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting closer, but we're not there. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, your work with the governor. Can you, can you say anything about what it was like to, uh, to work with the governor and what that experience was like? It's so mysterious to so many of us. And you had the opportunity to work with him very closely. He had the opportunity to learn from you. What was that like? You know, it was it was an incredible experience, um, and I'll say that Governor Newsom deserves a PhD in virology. He oh, wow. really he yeah. really does. I've worked with you know a lot of elected officials um, over the years, and I just find him to be remarkably smart and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And he and his staff agonize over doing the right thing because in every scenario, we wanted to do the right thing. And his understanding of science is pretty remarkable. He spent an enormous amount of time wanting to understand how the virus spread, wanting to understand every component of the supply chain for testing. 
he understands PCR and antibody testing in a way that I, I can't imagine most elected officials do. Mm. Um, he's, he's really very academic and nerdy and wonky about whatever issue is on his plate. So it was a remarkable experience. Um, and I worked very closely with Secretary Mark Galley, who is just a phenomenal human. You know, Governor Newsom's whole team is just a team of amazing humans yeah. leaning forward, wanting to do the right thing mm-hmm. in an incredibly challenging time. And Mark Alley has a heart of pure gold. And working with him was such an honor. And there were times where there was no good solution. And this is always true of an outbreak, even more so in a pandemic. You have to pick from a number of bad options that you don't like. Mm-hmm. And the question always came back to, what does California need? How do we anticipate the needs down the road? How do we take actions right now to meet those needs? And all of us had young children mm-hmm. and took the decisions we made very personally mm-hmm. and understood how it was affecting families and children. And um, each of us was was living it at, at the time. And so, you know, every day I was in the state operations center and um, in the first first few weeks, it, it um, was a little bit unusual to see, you know, the governor just walk by, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with different papers or ideas, you know, all the different um, solutions that we were launching and things to consider. But, you know, a few months in, it was, it was such a team spirit. You know, everyone was in it together. And we knew, and not just on the testing task force, but in all the efforts and in the modeling efforts and the different things the state was doing, we knew that we had to come up with all the different options in front of us and that Secretary Galley and the governor needed to know as many details as possible because they really digested every single one and trying to arrive at the right answer for California. In other words, in the past, you know, in a disease outbreak, there's a temptation as a physician or a health official to water it down to try and simplify it because you want them to understand it. But this was actually the opposite, where Gavin Newsom and Mark Galley were really seeking to know all of the wonky microbiology Mm -hmm. details to really understand the problem because they were in it with all of us. It was just a total team effort. So it, it truly was an honor to be on Governor Newsom's team and um, seeing him, you know, up close and that kind of leadership, not just from the governor, but his entire cabinet. It, it's very much a team mentality. Yeah. You know, on the issue of testing, what are the barriers? Like, if you think about it, just sort of very basic level, <clears throat> why can't we all go get tested? If we all went to go get tested, there's probably not capacity to do that. And then those who are tested, it does take... A few days what needs to happen in order for us to have a system where everybody can feel comfortable go getting a free test and know the results in 15 minutes what, what needs to happen yeah well I would say what needs to happen is people shouldn't have to go anywhere to get a test that the ideal test would be something that people could have at home or at a central place in the community or at the entrance to every building, um, or at every post office, or something like that, where it's just so wise, widespread and available and cheap and fast and accurate mm-hmm. that every single person can have a sense of their test result. And if every person had an access to access to that kind of testing, 
gosh, let's say every morning, imagine being able to spit in a cup, plug it into your iPhone, and get a result before you walked out of the door every day. Mm-hmm. We don't have that technology today, mm-hmm. uh, but we're getting closer to having something that you know that's fast and quick turnaround time and accessible. That kind of knowledge would enable people to get back to work or get back to school in a way that was safe. Yeah. I think the challenging thing is we live in a democracy. <laughs> and so throughout this entire period, it, it's been, you know, puzzling to look at other countries and see how they've controlled it, including Wuhan in China, mm-hmm. but then puzzling to say, okay, but we live in a democracy. So there's this concept in public health of using the least restrictive option. For example, when I was a local health officer and I had to issue a health officer order enforceable by police powers to restrict someone's rights, to force them to stay at home, for example, it was always super important to me to ask the question, is this the least restrictive option? Because I take it very seriously when you're taking away someone's rights to move about or their rights to go to school or their rights to go to work. And so, you know, the question in democracy is how do we manage this pandemic and prevent spread while using the least restrictive options. And we can't do many of the things that they did in Wuhan. And that means in a democracy, it requires the voluntary participation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say that this is a matter of patriotism, that as people understand that they own their own destiny, each local city, they own the future of their economy. Every business owner, if they understand, wearing masks and regular testing once it becomes available and all the things that we can do to prevent the spread, that's going to determine the economy. Mm -hmm. This isn't something the government is doing to us. Rather, we as citizens, we each have a responsibility to do the right thing. And that's how we contain this. And so I just believe firmly that, and I believe since the beginning of this, that helping people understand that all of us collectively can contribute to controlling this is helping them to understand this is a we the people solution to a disease outbreak. And the more we have ownership that we the people can control this, if we do the right thing, I think the more successful it will be. It's tragic, it's become so politicized because politicizing it suddenly makes the argument about two political parties instead of every individual taking ownership that we the people can take actions that protect the country and not wait for someone else to do that for us. Yeah, it must drive you insane when you have such deep scientific knowledge of the pandemic and then you turn on the TV or you know you see a story online and it's people who refuse to wear masks because they believe that's their American freedom and right to not do that. And then there's others on the other end who are blaming the president for causing the virus or not responding or things would have been much better if if he had responded differently. And it gets all caught up into a uh, a political sort of personality argument. And I think that's, that's part of it too. And that even happens in our county. We still have people who say most of the cases are in North County. Most of the cases are, you know, in the prison or were in the prison. And there's some people in Santa Barbara who have it. But if you actually look at the number of people today who have it, it's in the 200s in Santa Barbara County. And yet we can't, um, 
you know, eat in a restaurant or, right. or something like that. Or with some people, you know, our kids can't go back to school. And it's, I think it's so hard, you know, we, it gets to the issues of scientific literacy too, you know, right. in this country. Yep. And, and we kind of just want to know what we want to know to reaffirm what we believe in. But right. we're not really that interested sort of on the macro level and understanding the bigger picture unless we have a personal stake. And that's, right. that can be really dangerous because you um, eventually are going to have a stake in something, even if you don't think that it affects you. Just look at the, the pandemic. Right. What can we do at this point? You know, we're, we're in the stage of uh, we, didn't, we didn't do it right as a country. Right. We're trying to do what we can now with, with non-medical sort of uh, interventions, the social distancing, the masks. What needs to happen now? Is it it's testing and, and, and what else? Once the U.S. completely failed at the ability to contain the virus, and that failure was January, February. By the end of February, it was game over. Once the containment efforts have failed, then you're in mitigation, which is that delicate dance I talked about. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, again, looking back to 1918 and some of the modeling efforts that have come out, people who are familiar with the models, <clears throat> they essentially look at, you know, tight, loose, tight, loose. You clamp down, you loosen up. You clamp down, you loosen up. And as much as that strategy works, theoretically and in practice, the challenge is um, it doesn't work for the economy and it doesn't work for people getting back to a sense of, of normalcy. I don't think our country is going to be back to quote unquote normal until well into 2021. Um, I think people need to brace themselves that we're going to be in this pandemic a year from now, even if that just means we are figuring out vaccine distribution um, or we're figuring out um, how long that um, gives you immunity from the virus or we're figuring out is there going to be a COVID season from now on, similar to how we have a flu season because the virus will mutate. So I think it's really important that people have an understanding that this is not going to be over anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And once they have that, that they take the measures that they can take. They take personal responsibility for wearing a mask, physically distancing from others, that they begin to adjust their lives to plan for the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also believe in hope. And I think back to your question about politics, um, I know for sure that cynicism only hurts our country. And that the more that we have a sense of community and hope and tribe, that's how we get through difficult times. You know, it reminds me a lot of what our community went through after the Thomas fire and after the debris flow in Montecito. It impacted our entire community and being part of the team leading the county through that feels very similar to right now. where there's devastation, there's tremendous loss, life will never be the same. And how do we get through that and how do we come back from that? And I just believe firmly that we do that by um, a sense of tribe, a sense of we are all in this together and there are things that we can do to help each other um, and that there's always hope, there's things we can look forward to, we can plan for a different future, we can look at this school year and say, okay, this is going to be a wacky school year. So how do I need to change my life? And how can I help those around me who may not be as privileged as I am? Maybe they can't work from home. How can I help those around me and set up my life differently to try and create a sense of 
normalcy and routine during what's going to be a very abnormal year. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's a long way of saying that, you know, we're we're in strange times. We're going to be in strange times for at least the next year. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the more that we can each take responsibility for our role in it, our part in helping to control it, but also our role in taking care of each other, taking care of one another, I think um, the easier it will be to get through the next year. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you about parenting during the pandemic and, and, and distance learning in a second. But can we talk a little bit about healthcare on a national level sure. and the system that we have? I mean, I remember being a journalist in college and reading about how our healthcare structure is not set up in order to benefit actual people who have illnesses in America, that it's actually so filled with red tape and it's so filled with special interests who are sort of making decisions about how um, policy and, and medical care is distributed. I remember that. And that this was like an area of you should go into this kind of investigative journalism because it was, um, if you could, if you could, find a path of investigative journalism into the public health system, you know, you would make a huge mark because it was so undercovered. Um, are we set up from top to bottom to provide the best sort of medical care to to people? Can you talk at all a little bit about what it means when we're trying to solve a pandemic and we're doing it county by county, state by state, you know? And, yeah. And, 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 how, Talk to me a little bit about how our country's set up to deal with this sort of issue. Sure. Well, I would say um, it's not. Okay. And by way of background, the healthcare delivery system and the public health system operate in silos that are largely separated from each other. And I'll give some examples. A hospital, a skilled nursing facility, an outpatient clinic, private doctor's office, those are all part of the healthcare system that takes care of people's health when they get sick. The public health system is entirely separate from that. It is, um, I've referred to it before as kind of the stepchild of the healthcare system, but even that's not accurate because they're entirely separate. The public health system is a local public health department run by government. Um, who's monitoring diseases, who's treating things like tuberculosis, doing things like nutrition counseling for new mothers or maternal child um, uh, care, adolescent care, and looking at social determinants of health, um, what populations are most vulnerable, environmental health, inspecting restaurants, um, doing a lot of the behind the scenes things. What I've called before quietly humming machine in the background um, behind behind the scenes of regular business family schools work and healthcare. so most people don't really know what public health departments do um, including the healthcare community and so the unfortunate outcome of having those two separate silos is um, in a situation like a pandemic in the beginning they were very much operating as separate silos and with with very little ability to communicate information back and forth. Um, No one in business today uses faxes anymore, but the healthcare system does, (laughs) and the public health system does. 
And so in many ways, the public health system is still operating the way it did 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yet there have been so many advances in the healthcare system that, you know, public health has such a need to use new technology. Um, everyone read in the newspapers recently about the failed CalReady system in the state of California. Yeah. CalReady is the database, California Reportable Disease Information Exchange. And it was unreliable. Um, it had had many problems before. And so the failure of CalReady was, was something that um, was not a huge surprise to those of us that have worked with it before. But it was devastating to the state's ability to track the number of COVID tests and devastating to the county's ability to know who their positives were. And so in other words, the failure of an outdated data system by the state ended up making counties and communities less safe because for a period of time they didn't know who their positives were or what their data was. And the entire U.S. public health system is incredibly outdated. It was really built in the last century for the last century and is not has not been able to capitalize on all the new technologies available today. You know, here we are in California in this state of incredible technology innovation. You know, we have Silicon Valley here with the most um, innovative technology minds in the world. And yet our state and our counties and our local public health is having to rely on outdated systems that break. There's something wrong with that. And for those of us that have worked inside the systems, you know, our our job is to always do the very best with what we have. Um, But across the country, to have each local health department in each state essentially having to come up with their own solution, that is not efficient and it's not safe. And so I believe very much that the entire country needs an entirely new capability to detect and contain diseases. Because clearly, if there's one thing I think we can all agree on, the current system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Or we would not be where we are today. Let's go back a little bit to the testing. And um, you played a big role at the, at the state when the state was trying to develop these models for for testing. And I'm just sort of wondering if you could talk about what was that like in terms of where you got most excited or your favorite thing or what were you most interested in as a as a scientist as a doctor what did you see your path being as to helping to contain this virus sure yeah that's a great question well my undergraduates in microbiology so i've always loved the laboratory and when i was here in santa barbara county i was the medical director of the public health lab and would oftentimes run down to the public health lab to look at a rabies slide or a tuberculosis slide. And so laboratory medicine is very near and dear to my heart. Um, So in March, when I was asked to stand up and then co-chair the governor's testing task force, um, I knew it would be an incredible challenge. In fact, in the beginning, I wasn't sure we could fix testing for California. Mm. Um, And our, our roadmap went something like this. First, we needed to fix the supply problem, get the supplies into California, make sure that we had enough capacity to do testing. And again, we were aiming for 60,000 tests a day. Next, fix the demand problem, stand up specimen collection sites across the state, figure out how to do that. It was a massive, logical, operational challenge. Um, And then last, look at all the 
um, really interesting diagnostic pieces of testing. And out of everything that I did leading the testing task force, the most interesting to me was the genomic sequencing. Mm. So for those who don't know genomic sequencing, I'll explain it to it like a family tree. Imagine if someone handed you a piece of paper with a family tree mapped out, but half of the faces were missing. So if the family tree had pictures of aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, but half of them were missing, you could look at that family tree and say, oh, we're missing an aunt right here. We're missing my fourth grandmother. You know, you could look at that and it's a clock and it's a calendar. You can see how many generations have passed, how much time has passed, and who's missing. That's what genomic sequencing does. It looks at the sequence, in in this case, in the RNA, in the virus, the virus is RNA, and maps out the entire sequence. And because this virus mutates at a fairly predictable rate, accumulating one mutation about every one to two weeks, by doing a sequencing, a sequence, you can actually show who infected whom. You, in other words, you can construct a family tree. So if you have an outbreak, let's say you have an outbreak at a restaurant, and you want to know how many cases that came out of that were actually caused by one infectious person eating at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. If you were to do genomic sequencing on all the cases, you would come up with a family tree, and you might discover, oh, 18 of the 20 cases were infected by one person at the restaurant. But these other two cases, they got the virus from a family gathering or they got the virus from somewhere else. And so genomic sequencing allows you to create that family tree. And in January, I became obsessed with looking at nextstrain.org because all of the smart microbiologists across the world were dumping their sequencing results into nextstrain.org to create a family tree for the world. And we could watch the virus evolve and move across the world. We could see the strain in Italy. We could see the strain in Washington. We could see what strains were being introduced you know, in different places around the world. And I was obsessed with this because Genomic sequencing, when you take that information and you layer it on top of epidemiology or contact tracing at the local level, it gives you what we call genomic epidemiology, which means a family tree of all the cases of who infected whom in an outbreak or in California or in Santa Barbara. And I use this all the time in the past for other diseases. But in COVID, um, I became super interested in how answering the question, how might we as a state take genomic sequencing and give it to the local public health officers as a tool in their hands to make science-based decisions based on definitive data at the local level? And so I think it was about in April that I was introduced to Joe DeRisi from Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. He's the co-president of Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. And if anyone's not familiar with Chan Zuckerberg, um, they've, they launched a pretty remarkable initiative. And Priscilla Chan is a pediatrician and very smart and very interested in, in solving complex disease problems. And uh, we had a number of conversations that basically led to a partnership between Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and the state of California around genomic sequencing. And working with Chan Zuckerberg through the California Department of Public Health and working with local health departments, um, we were able to assemble a plan 
that allowed local health jurisdictions to send their specimens to for genomic sequencing, but then to get the information back so that they could use it for local epidemiology. And if that sounds really complex, let me simplify it a little bit. A local health department could take their positive specimens and send them to the family tree factory Mm -hmm. and get results back of their local family tree. Mm -hmm. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because as a local health officer, you have to make really difficult decisions. And you want them actually based on science and data. And you want to be able to say, I'm closing down this particular gathering because I know for a fact that it is a source of cases of COVID. And you know that because you have the genomic sequencing results for your county. So it's a very, very powerful tool. It's the thing I was and am the most passionate about. And Chan Zuckerberg Biohub has just gone to incredible lengths to develop out that technology and to make it available to all local public health departments in the state. I also know for a fact that many, if not most, local public health departments are not taking advantage of it. And I wish they were. It's a really powerful tool. Um, There are some logistical challenges around it, you know, getting, you know, RNA extraction and getting specimens to the labs that can do sequencing. And so, um, it's something that I know the bugs need to be worked out, no pun intended. Bugs is kind of slang for the pathogen in the infectious disease world. But working out the bugs in the system of how, how might we bring genomic epidemiology to every local public health department in the country is something I'm really passionate about and I'm not, I'm not going to stop working on. In fact, that's something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about right now because it's such an important capability for disease control, and I believe it is the public health disease control of the future. So is this just happening now with this pandemic? Is, it, is this a new sort of technology system that we're, we're seeing, or has it been around before? Um, it's been around before, but it w- has not been widely used. Okay. Um, I used it in the past for local disease control because I really believe that sequencing holds the keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm for disease control. Um, But it it is a fairly new concept to public health, and it is a fairly new thing um, that CZ Biohub is making this push to give these tools to local public health departments in the setting of COVID. Is Santa Barbara County using this, do you know? I don't know. Uh And the barriers are are what? Is there a cost factor? No. Nope. The barriers are mostly logistics. Logistics. Yeah. The barriers are logistics. This, the specimens have to go through RNA extraction, and then that RNA has to be sent to the lab, like sent to CZ Biohub Lab for the sequencing. And then once the sequencing happened, there's a last step called bioinformatics, which is where you take the sequencing results and you re-identify it. So you, you couple it up with the actual patients' names is part of the contact investigation in the community. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that's fairly complex and technical. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about. How, how might we, we collectively, mm-hmm. simplify that process to empower frontline public health to use this every day? I don't know the answers yet. I think we're you know probably a few years away from having that kind of answer. But that's one of the reasons why every local public health department isn't using this yet is... Mm-hmm. We have not figured out yet how to simplify some of those logistics. You know, one of the reasons I 
love talking to you and interviewing you over the years is when you talk about this stuff, your passion just like bursts through, even through your mask today, you know, <laughs> and it's different because it's, it doesn't seem like work for you. Like when you explain these things, it seems like this is exactly what you would want to be talking about all the time, whether you're on it is. or off. It's yeah. just like you just love it. And it sort of, um, you know, it translates to like when I first met you, or actually I didn't first meet you there, but when we first started to talk more with, with coaching, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you were always one of the great moms on the baseball field because you were never advocating for your kid. You yeah. were just there to be supportive of your kid and the team and the greater good. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me that as I get to know you more that those themes continue to exist as who you are. It was never about, I don't think I ever got a question from you once about, you know, what place is my kid hitting or, you know, what positions because yeah. you were sort of like, I'm here for the experience and the team and um, I'm not here to sort of just singularly focus on one thing. And yeah. it's a, it's interesting because here you have the very you know, basic Americana, you know, baseball, little league thing that a lot of families do. And then you have the super high level science that you do. But that connection is there. Like you, you have this love for making things better for the whole. And yeah. I really appreciate, you know, you sort of having those values. And I think that's what makes you so credible and knowledgeable when you talk about these things so let's talk a little bit since I know um, you're this super mom what was it like what is it like being a parent during COVID with distance learning because yeah I mean I know my experience is hard uh, what has it been like for you to have to to deal with deal with this yeah it's been an adventure Mm -hmm. and um i'm constantly reassured when i talk with other parents that we're all in this together and we're all figuring it out as we go um in march and april so you know after spring break when we realized that schools were not going to reopen and we had to figure out how to do school online i remember sitting with the kids in the morning trying to navigate the different apps and websites that their school was using. And all the schools were scrambling. I mean, this this was not something the school system ever expected they'd have to be able to do. And I remember sitting there with my kiddos at the kitchen table around 8 a.m. And I, you know, was in a suit and heels trying to get out the door to the state operations center to help run the pandemic for California. But what was even harder than that was figuring out the apps on the website, you know, Google Documents and, you know, like each, I have three sons, so fourth grade, sixth grade, and eighth grade. Each kiddo had maybe five different platforms that they had to use as part of their classroom and the teachers were scrambling to figure it out too. And so as a mom who's not, I'm not super nimble with technology, you know, standing there and sitting with my children was super frustrating for me because I felt like I was failing as a mom in navigating this technology that they needed to know for school. And it was really funny because my middle son, my 11-year-old Tiger, who's really good with technology, in fact, I call him the CTO of the family, (laughs) he would just dive in and figure it out. And then he'd show me how it worked and then explain it to his brothers. Mm -hmm. And so it was really frustrating and um, especially, you know, the working long days and coming home and my parents were a huge help. My parents sat down and, you know, helped the kids figure out these platforms and, you know, we hired someone to come in and help us as well. 
but um, it was just really challenging and stressful and as if it wasn't hard enough, you know, running a pandemic for California to try and figure out how to do online schooling was such a challenge. Um, And I've been super impressed with uh, the California Department of Education because they really launched an aggressive effort to fix it. And Tony Thurmond is a friend of mine and he's just an incredible leader. And he's a parent too, you know, so he was going through it at the same time as well. And he's, he's head of education for the state, but you know, he was experiencing the same challenges. And so we would talk and laugh about it. And, um, over the summer, what the schools did is they just completely revamped the way they were doing online school. And I was tracking a lot of this, you know, watching the, you know, from a microbiology standpoint, watching the modeling saying, yeah, schools aren't going to reopen. But then from a mom standpoint, watching what the schools were doing and saying, can we trust that they're going to revamp the online schooling so that people like me who are not great with technology know that our kids are going to do okay. And they did. They really did. And so the first um, full week of school, so that was what, three weeks ago now, so every day I sat next to my kids watching how the online schooling was go re- really for my sake so that I could learn um, because I knew if if my little one hit a problem and couldn't figure out how to open an app or how do you upload a document, I was their tech support. That's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. I'm the tech support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It should never happen, but that's the situation all parents are in right now. And what was remarkable to me that first week of school was two things. Number one, my fourth graders' computer skills skyrocketed. By the end of the week, he had it figured out way more than I did. And he would say, Mom, I got this. I got this. Mom, I'm okay. I'm I'm okay. And I would watch him, and he did. Mm -hmm. And my three sons help each other Mm -hmm. with navigating these platforms. So I was just blown away that one of the silver linings in this for me is my sons, including my fourth grader, have better technology skills than they ever would have. And they're proud of themselves. You know, they've figured it out. And the other thing that week that surprised me was how hard it is to be a teacher and teach parents, babysitters, siblings, tutors, you know, whoever is sitting next to the kid is watching the teacher. And there were times I'd be sitting next to Bucky, my little one, And I realized, you know, this is incredibly high pressure for the teachers because they have me sitting there too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a great situation for the teachers. Just like as as a baseball coach, it would probably drive you bonkers if a parent showed up to every practice and was watching every single practice wanting to know how their kid was doing. Because you need to be able to coach. You need to be able to discipline. If a kid's screwing around, you got to discipline that kid. And so I just recognize how hard it must be for the teachers essentially teaching in a fishbowl with all the parents watching. And so um, I think online school is going incredibly well. Um, I, you know, meet with the teachers and and on a regular basis, we just had our back to school night um, recently with it's all online. And I just continue to be impressed by, you know, what they put together. I think the people struggling with it you know, really the most are, are the, the parents. And I think kids, kids are amazing. They're learning these technology skills that my generation never did. Yeah. Kids are super resilient. They can handle way more than we think they can. And that's true with, with technology. My, my daughter 
it was tough in March because we were just figuring it out. But whatever the teachers did over the summer, it shows yeah. right away because uh, things are much better, you know. And, and so there's there's uh, Zoom time, but then there's the asynchronous time where they do their work and and it's it's all sort of you know working out what I really don't want, you know, as much as I want things to return to normalcy, I don't really like the start, stop, start, stop. Right. So my daughter's in first grade, so she didn't even complete a first year of school. Right. So in her mind, this is just what it is. So I don't want her to get into the sense of, we're going to go back to school, and then we're going to, oh, cases got worse, so now we're going to have this hybrid thing, or now we're going to shut down again. And I know that they say if we reopen, we're not going to shut down again, but we really don't know what we're going to do until we're in it and how bad it is. So it's very frustrating when you have this young mind. I remember I always always say this to my friends, is that when I was growing up in the 80s, I was so concerned about a nuclear war. You remember like Reagan, Gorbachev, and sort of this idea that at any point, you know, this... Remember that movie? There's this movie called The Day After that I was so scared just from the advertising. I never even watched it because I was a kid. Like, what would happen after the nuclear bomb? And that was sort of like my fear growing up that at any point we would look up and we would see, you know, these sort of explosions. And uh, I think with, a lot of times with kids, you know, like my daughter can say COVID-19 just rolls off her tongue because yeah. because it's just everywhere now, you know. So I think that the... the, the, the we won't even know sort of later about the impacts of growing up with the COVID-19 thing that they don't even understand yet, but they know it means they can't go to school or they can't do the things that they used to do. It's, it's very, I think, tough sort of emotionally on them, but from a academic perspective, I think it's gotten much better. I know at the college, one of the challenges I had to do was we had to do a six week training for how do you teach online to college students and make sure that the class is just as though they were taking it in person. Uh, You had to make it 100% interactive and accessible. In other words, you can't just go up there and lecture for 80 minutes, Josh. You've got to make sure that everything that you would have handed out in class, the interactivity, you can do online. And it's difficult. My lectures are recorded now. Yeah. So I'm thinking, like, what a change, because, you know, you need to have that creativity as a teacher to yeah. be able to go in this direction for a moment, go off script, deal with students one-on-one um, in that setting, and have the class sort of learn from that experience. Yep. And then when you're recorded, it's like this check, you know. So when you talk about the teachers are teaching to Dr. Dean in the room, too, it's like I'm teaching, too, because anybody could share that link and be That's like, right. whoa, you know. And so is a lot of pressure. Yeah. That, that because there's a relationship that happens with, it, you know, that teacher and student and that coach and the trust of this is how we've gotten to know each other. And, you, you know, this is what our terms are. And we get it. And then if yeah. somebody else sees that, you're like whoa you know that it's it's sort of difficult and so I resist that temptation when I'm listening to Megan in her class like I try not to be like to cope to help her or whisper you know because you want to you know there's a question you want to say yes because the teacher will say we're going to talk about our favorite thing from the weekend and you know and you know and she'll be like "Hmm, what do I think and 
the temptation is tell them about this. Yes. But that's not you wouldn't be there in the class. Right. To we do wouldn't that. even be there. We wouldn't even know the question was being asked. Yeah. So I resist that temptation, but I definitely think it, you know, and I know the teacher appreciates not having to hear dad coach her kid over the computer coach yep. his kid over the computer. And so that's sort of interesting in that that whole thing is sort of sort of change that whole dynamic. And then I have a 14 year old and I don't know what he does, you know, I mean, he's, he's self-contained. He's he on autopilot. Well, the, so, okay. So it's weird. Well, you know, Jacob, and yeah. he's never been a computer person. And he's like, a freshman in high school, sophomore, sophomore in yeah. high school. He's never been a computer person. And then this whole pandemic, it's like, he's on the computer all the time. Yeah. He loves it. It's like, Isn't he that discovered amazing? the computer. I had worked so hard be like you're not going to be one of those computer gamer nerds who's on your computer you need to yeah. be outdoors and active and like conversational and you need to be reading books and you need to be and now he's just like so it's like well you, you know he likes it and he's doing it and he, at least he does have that other side still yeah but he loves the computer <laughs> so it's just sort of fascinating and then the, my, I bought my daughter a pink mouse and she loves it like it's her <laughs> own little mouse and she just enjoys that. So, so the technology of, uh, or, or these technology aspects that these kids are learning, I think, is super helpful. Yeah, you know? and they're like, taking ownership of it. Like her loving the mouse, you know, right. she'll have a sense that this is her skill. Yeah. She developed it. She knows how to do it. That's her mouse. It's her computer. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, it, you know, we thought so much before about these differences in, in gender and technology and what people gravitate to is like, you know, here everybody's equalized. Everyone's yeah. using these same tools in yeah. order to figure out how to learn. My biggest frustration, and I do this when I'm on Zoom, maybe you do too, is you start talking and you forget to unmute yourself. You know, it's like yep. the most common thing. You know, so it's like, it's funny to watch her and she's like, and then she talks, you know, like yep. she pauses, unmutes, and then talks. So that's sort of, sort of an interesting thing. What do you think about schools? Like, I mean, should we reopen with social distancing? How far are we from that? You know, Santa Barbara County says, we're not even gonna think about it until we get from the purple tier to the red tier. And then some of the districts are saying, red tier won't be good enough. We need to get to the orange tier before we start opening. Um, Do you, as a, you know, obviously you're a parent, you're a scientist, what? What's the perfect recipe here for having kids go back to school from your perspective in person? Yeah, well, I think it's impossible to say right now um, because we don't have the right testing available. So the the perfect recipe would be having testing that was so widely available um, that teachers, students, school staff could all be tested on a very frequent basis so that anyone who you identify that's positive could immediately be pulled out. In other words, you keep that school setting low risk. And so that's really the key to returning to school. But before I came in here to meet with you, I was walking down State Street and seeing, you know, people who were dining or at restaurants or walking up and down the street all clustered together. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it, it made me angry because it doesn't make sense to me that our schools are closed, but all these recreational activities are open. Mm-hmm. While it's true that being outside and wearing a mask at the same time significantly decreases the risk. What I just saw on State Street was hundreds of people not wearing masks in close proximity to each other. So you can't tell me that that makes any sense, that people can do that for recreational purposes, and all of our kids can't go to school. Um, Friends of mine 
and colleagues of mine are put in the horrible position of having to quit their jobs um, or lose their jobs because they can't go to work because they have to homeschool their kids. And so it doesn't make sense that as a society, we are not putting the value on children. If we truly value children most, then getting kids and teachers safely um, back to school has to be our priority. Mm-hmm. And that would mean focusing on how to get testing you know, to them. And that might mean shutting down other sectors that all, although they might be low risk, they're not, they're not no risk. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we take all our risk and we couple it in certain categories, based on what our priorities are, I absolutely do think it would be possible to get the kids and teachers and staff back to school safely. But it's going to take a robust testing ability, which is going to take funding, it's going to take dollars, and it's going to take understanding the trade-offs that some of the other activities that are going on will probably need to stop in order for schools to reopen. So it's frustrating to me, um, you know, as a parent, just, you know, as a community member to see the devastating toll that it's having on families and the economy to have these schools closed when I absolutely think there's a path to safely reopening. Now, in some communities, there won't be. If you look at the map of California, you know, you'll see counties and cities that have a positivity rate, you know, of 20%, 30%. Well, that means if you have a high rate of virus transmission, then it's not safe under any circumstances to open schools. And so it's, it's nuanced, but it's also just math and microbiology. And so I I absolutely believe that we have to have the top priority be children and education. And that's going to mean being willing as local governments and as local leaders to put the money and the resources towards empowering schools and teachers and students to reopen safely when they can. Recognizing there are some situations where they just can't, Mm -hmm. they won't be able to. Um, but I don't, I don't have all the answers in that space. I'm biased, as you know, because I'm a parent. Um, but it's really, it's really frustrating to, to think that the whole school year could be done remotely. At the same time, I think it's important to focus on gratitude. So mm-hmm. when I get frustrated, personally, I go back to gratitude. I'm so thankful that my kids are learning new computer skills. Yeah. I'm thankful I know exactly where Bucky is with handwriting because I'm sitting next to him while he's doing it. Right. You know, before, pre-COVID, you know, the kids come home from school. They might throw their backpacks on the ground. I say, how was school? What'd you do today? Oh, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Shrug their shoulders. Did you bring anything home? No, no, I left it all there. I didn't get to have that window into their academic world. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. I'm thankful for teachers. Super thankful for the teachers. So I just, um, I personally try and stay focused on, on gratitude and all the ways, all the, you know, silver linings in this pandemic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's so many good things. That sounds awful to say, but the good thing for, for me that came out of the pandemic was the reconnection with children and, and family in that, just like you said, for me, I'm a workaholic. I mean, I could work. 24-7 with a smile on my face. I love it. Yeah. But when you're a workaholic, sometimes you work too much and you forget to do the daily maintenance of what it takes in, you know, in terms of connecting with your kids or your partners, whatever. And you sort of say, oh, the weekend will reconnect. Well, with the pandemic, you're home all the time. Right. All day together. Right. So you're constantly talking. So that, that's one thing. It's sort of been this like stiff arm to the to the face of like, well, 
you you're here you're we're all here let's talk again you know? yeah and so I think that's been one thing you know there's more game playing there's more conversations around dinner uh, there's just more conversing and, yeah and you know we get so busy in life you know yeah and it's okay to it's be true. busy and have a professional goals and dreams and all of that but it's important to also re- remember interact and this pandemic for better or worse with just having to stay at home yeah has facilitated that for for at least me maybe some for some other people i want to wrap up we've had such a good conversation but let me just sort of maybe we can end with what's what's ahead what's the future i know you don't have a crystal ball i know that this is going to take every person in this country and around the world to take personal responsibility like you said be a patriot and wear a mask and socially distance and be part of the solution right and not part of the finger pointing but you know you've talked about we're going to be in this through 2021 and then it's going to be about vaccine distribution and so much of the coordination that needs to happen with all these levels and we need to depoliticize all this talk about this public health system but you know what what where are we headed how soon can we get out of this and is this going to be the end of the pandemic or are we going to have to be is this just the new normal we're going to be dealing with this going forward sure yeah well i'm always hesitant to make um predictions but i can certainly talk about the potentials and and the potential for where we could be headed um like i said in the beginning even though to those who are not obsessed with pandemics or microbiology or disease control it might feel very out of control and very unpredictable but the truth is this is math and microbiology we know exactly what the virus will do and we can use math to predict that the unpredictable part is always what the people will do people meaning individuals will they take individual responsibility communities will the whole community take responsibility And then, of course, politicians and decision makers for the state and the country. So that's the unknown. Um, I absolutely believe there's now a strong potential. We're going to have half a million deaths in the United States. And if you fast forward to next May, you know, again, just looking at the potential if the humans choose not to do what they need to do to contain this, there's absolutely a potential for a million deaths by next by end of next May. And that's just looking at the math across different states um, who maybe based on politics have decided not to do the things that they need to do to contain the spread. Um, so the potential for the United States is that this could get even more devastating than it has been so far. On the flip side, there's also the potential that if every person in every community took responsibility for doing the right thing, we could absolutely you know, have this in a much more controllable situation in six weeks, in eight weeks. Um, if you look at you know, the transmission cycle and the amount of time it takes for deaths or hospitalizations to skyrocket or to trend down, if every single person right now did the right thing, we would have this very controllable within six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. We actually own our own future. And so the potential, you know, I just described a potential on both ends of the spectrum. And the unknown is what will the humans do? And I guess that's my, you know, call to patriotism for every single person to understand that they actually have way more control than they might realize over the direction this heads. Um, 
somewhere in the middle of that, so if you want to call it kind of the medium or the more likely scenario, is that it, if once a vaccine is developed and let's say is, you know, um, has finished their, their trials by, let's say, February-ish or March, even then the goal of vaccine distribution is a very lofty goal and looking at just the operational logistics how how do you distribute a vaccine to the entire country mm-hmm. and what cohorts what groups of people are covered by the vaccine and what groups of people maybe the vaccine isn't safe for mm-hmm. you know it might be a vaccine that's not safe for certain groups of people um so just distributing the vaccine will have all these different logistical challenges and that's why i think it's very likely and reasonable to think that we're going to be in this through next spring mm-hmm. and potentially even through next summer because just developing a vaccine isn't enough we then have to figure out how to scale up manufacturing and distribute it to you know millions of people and make sure that the most vulnerable people who either can't take the vaccine or maybe they're first in line for the vaccine that they are protected so you know, and then the other question always I get asked frequently is, well, what about if the virus mutates? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are scenarios where um, COVID-19 or coronavirus could end up being something that's not done and over in a year. That's It's something that we're actually dealing with further out from one year from now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, you know, I think as a, as a country, I always look back to 1776 and look back at what we've been through as a country we have overcome incredible challenges um, and times in our the history of our country that were really a turning point for the country. And I believe this is one of those points. And it's an opportunity to look at the U.S. public health system and to look at government as a whole and individually down to the local level and ask, did this work? And if the answer is no, then what does the country need? What does the country need? And how might we build that so that we're better prepared for the next one? Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation, and I wish you the best at whatever you're working on. You know, I know you have a lot going on. Thank you. Uh, going forward, but I know that uh, you're very successful and you're going to continue to have an impact uh, no matter what you do. So thank you for your time. My pleasure. You can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. These podcasts are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts. And thanks to Kiva Cohort for supporting these podcasts.